to episode three of our series called Text. Most people, whether they are Christians or non-Christians or even folks from other religions, they know parts of some Bible stories, but most people do not know the story of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons it's been so easy for, for you maybe to dismiss the Bible for some of you, this is the reason that you were, uh, it was so easy to dismiss Christianity and to, to walk away from your childhood faith is because while people told you stories uh, as you were growing up, they gave you Bible stories, you, no one ever sat you down and explained to you the story of the Bible. Part of the reason that they didn't do that is, well, because you wouldn't have been interested at all. And the other reason that they didn't tell you the story of the Bible is because in many instances, the people that handed you your first Bible did not know the story of the Bible themselves. But this is, trust me, a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal in our culture. It's a really big deal in your life. It's a really big deal for Christians. And you know what? Maybe it's an even bigger deal if you grew up in the faith and you, if you walked away from faith. Understanding how we got a this is almost as important as what's in this, okay? The backstory, the origin story sheds light on the story. Part of the challenge really, really for all of us is regardless of what kind of home you grew up in, Christian or non-Christian, part of the challenge is that the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that we got the Bible. By, by the time I got my first Bible, which is this one, wrapped in genuine red imitation leather. It was chaptered and versed. It was mapped and wrapped, and uh, it was all put together with the Jewish scriptures. They're in here, and the Christian scriptures were in here. They were footnoted, and they have um, illustrations, and they've got these cool map kind of things in the back. That's not how we got the Bible. And the interesting thing is, if I were to survey everybody out there and say, please, Take a moment and write down where you think that the Bible came from. We would probably get about as many answers as there are people who are watching or listening right now. And there are all kinds of uh, interesting ideas about where the Bible came from. And if you don't know the story of how the Bible came to be, it's just so much easier to dismiss everything inside of it. So, just to kind of get us started... First thing that I need you to know, Jesus did not write it, okay? To be fully clear, Jesus did not write any part of it. But here is the new information, really for most people, especially if you've walked away from your faith or if you grew up in faith, but, but you didn't know the story of the Bible. Jesus didn't write it, but Jesus is the reason that we have it. Our story begins, the story of the Bible begins not in Genesis, the story of the Bible begins when Jesus was discovered alive after he had been crucified. And it's important to know, as we talked about last episode, if Jesus had, had been crucified but didn't rise from the dead, th this is so important to understand, this would not exist. There would be nothing to write about. The reason that men and women decided to document the life of Jesus is not what he taught. And it wasn't that he was crucified. Jesus made just way too many claims about himself. 
And so the fact that a guy named Nicodemus and, and, and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, they, they actually took a lifeless body down from a Roman cross, proved that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And he was not who his followers hoped that he was. But when that tomb was discovered empty, and when his disciples, and by disciples, I don't mean the 12 apostles. By disciples, I mean the hundreds of people that followed him from the Jordan River throughout his ministry. When they saw him alive from the dead, these men and women who had run from their, for their lives when he got arrested, they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they proclaimed not what they read about, not what they had heard about, but what they had seen, eyewitnesses with their own eyes, a resurrected Savior. And the church began right then. And you know when, where the church began? The church began in the very city that Jesus was arrested in. And outside those city walls where Jesus had been crucified, it began right there around the men and the women who had said, crucify him. And around the men and the women who would run for their lives when he was arrested. Right there in that city, in that very same time frame, the church was launched. And so the events surrounding the life of Jesus, the resurrected rabbi, the resurrected son of man, the resurrection and the life, all these titles that he gave himself and others gave him, the very same Jesus, the, the, the events of his life were extremely important to first century followers. So many, and this, and this is really unusual, this is an overlooked detail, many people attempted to write down an orderly account of the life of Jesus, not just a few, many the fact that we have four different documents of the life of Jesus, we, we don't just have references to these documents like most ancient history. You should know this. Most ancient history is just references to documents that we no longer have. You would be shocked how much ancient history. There are no copies of any original documents. It's, it's just authors who reference documents, who reference documents, and, and, and the documents are, are no longer with us because they just disintegrated over time. But the story of Jesus, who was a nobody, is different. And if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then, then here's something that we, we have in common. If he's not the Son of God, he is a nobody. He's just another first century wannabe rabbi, a wannabe Messiah who claimed things about himself that weren't true. He was a nobody, and he makes no difference. And yet, we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And the reason we have those accounts is not what he taught. Not that he was crucified, and it's not that he was arrested. The reason someone sat down to document the life of Jesus is because he rose from the dead. So consequently, we talk about, you know, this last episode. If you didn't hear that episode or the one before that, you really owe it to yourself. Uh, go back and watch or listen to those. We have this document, we call it Matthew, that's an account of the life of Jesus. And then there's Mark and Luke and John. And as soon as these were written, and they were written at different times, and, but, but not far apart, but as soon as they were written, they were immediately, immediately considered valuable. They were immediately considered reliable and consequently sacred. Because of the story that it told, and then eventually inspired. Valuable, reliable, sacred, and inspired. And very quickly, these four documents were considered by the early church to be Scripture. But 
it's still important to understand that after we got the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, after they were written, there was still no Bible. There was just four accounts of the life of Jesus that the early church held in high regard. And as we talked about, again, last episode, these people would eventually risk their lives to protect. And that's where the story picks up this episode. The Apostle Paul and others left Judea and began telling Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, about the claims of Jesus. And the biggest transition, the biggest struggle for Gentiles who were enamored by the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus, the Gentiles who wanted to embrace the life of Jesus, embrace Jesus as Savior and as their Lord, the struggle for them was this whole idea of giving up everything that they had been brought up to believe, giving up everything that everyone around them had been brought up to believe, and embracing the idea that there was only one God. Now, this is kind of a no-brainer for us because we're not polytheists. But it would be like many of you who grew up believing in God to suddenly just stop believing in God. It would be like those of you who don't believe in God to just suddenly start to believe in God. There are just so many implications from that decision. So the entire ancient non-Jewish world was expected in order to be Christian to embrace this notion that there was only one God. And that was just unimaginable. It's important to know this. In, in, in ancient times, people didn't uh, convert from one religion to another, okay? They didn't leave Islam to become Christian, or they, they didn't uh, leave Christian to become Buddhist. That's not how it worked. There weren't religions like that, okay? Every religion, uh, every, every region, every nation, uh, the barbarians and the, the Romans and the earlier Greeks, they all had their own gods. Most families had family gods. They worshiped their ancestors. And so when you move from place to place, you just took your gods with you, right? You take them, you pop them into a sack, and you take them with you, and you set them up at your family altar, and nobody really cared about what gods that you worshiped or served. You know what? You might even adopt some more gods from the region that you were in. And then if something bad happened while you were worshiping with some of God, you might just take that God and, and throw it in the fire and say, you know what, these aren't really gods. Look at what happened. So it didn't really matter. Uh, and as we said last episode, the Roman Empire, they didn't care who you worshipped as long as every once in a while you paid homage to Caesar and as long as you didn't dishonor the Roman gods. So you could keep your entire personal pantheon of gods. It just didn't matter. And then Christianity comes along and says, no, you have to give up all your gods. And in the first century, in the second century, Christians were actually considered to be atheists. The Christians were the atheists. Why? <coughs> because Christians didn't believe in the gods. And then they added a new one who claimed to be the only one. So this was a giant obstacle for Gentiles to embrace Christianity. This was a barrier that needed to be broken down. But in, in, in more and more parts, different parts of the Gentile world, these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus anyway. But the idea of there being only one God, well, it seemed to them to be very novel and very new. And what we're about to do is a really important part of our journey. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about this in our next episode, but this is the part that maybe nobody told you. When Gentiles became enamored with one particular Jew, who would that be? Come on, it's not a trick question. Who would that be? Jesus, right. They became enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews. Before Jesus came along, this was not the case. There was always, you know, a a little teeny tiny itty bitty um, percentage of Gentiles who followed Judaism as close as they could. And then occasionally somebody would actually go through a ceremony to sort of become a Gentile version of a Jewish person. But for the most part, Gentiles were not interested in the Jewish sacred texts. And for a lot of good reasons. Like what you say? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Jews kept to themselves. Jews ate different kinds of food. Jews refused to work on the Sabbath. Jews would not allow you to marry their daughters. They would not allow their sons to marry your daughters. And we know in the first century, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' prime disciples, 15 years after the resurrection, still had not ever entered a Gentile home and had probably never invited a Gentile into his home. So the Jews kept to themselves. They had their own dietary laws. And so inside Judea and Galilee, where it's mostly Jewish, that was easy. But there were pockets of Jews in every major city. They were in Ephesus, in Rome, and Corinth, in the region of Galatia. And where they settled, they kept to themselves. So Gentile people had virtually no interest in Jewish religion and virtually no interest in the Jews until they were introduced to the gospel and the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus. And they were confronted with the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and others who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And when they discovered that the Jewish text, which the Jews called the law and the prophets, not the Old Testament, that wouldn't come until later. When they discovered that the law and the prophets were the backstory of this new story, they became interested in the Hebrew or the Jewish text. They weren't interested in Judaism. And this causes more than one problem later on. They were interested in finding Jesus in the text of the Jewish people. Now, to their amazement, to their shock and awe, to a degree of amazement that I don't think that we can begin to describe, when they began to explore the text of the Jews, when they began to read it for themselves, they didn't even know what to call some of these things. It took them until about the middle of the second century before the Gentile church even was able to assemble a list of Jewish texts that they would even begin to consider a canon. This took place over a long period of time, but to their amazement, when they discovered that the Jews whose religion was older than the religion of the Romans, that was older than the religion of the Greeks, they discovered that the Jewish people had always, from the very beginning, only believed in one God, Yahweh. Now, a little bit of extra history for for you before we get back to the plot line, okay? Because this is really important stuff. During the first century, the second century, the third century, Christians were persecuted by Romans because Christians 
we said last episode, you might remember, would not worship the gods and would not declare that Caesar is Lord. But the Jews had never worshipped or honored the Greek and the Roman gods. And the Jews had never declared that Caesar was Lord. So a question that you may have never asked before, but you really should ask maybe right now, why is it that the Roman Empire gave the Jews a pass, but they persecuted Christians? The Jews were just as guilty, only they had been guilty for longer the Jews were not just as they were, they were just as guilty as the Christians of not declaring Caesar as Lord and of not honoring any of the Roman gods, but the Romans left the Jews alone. And do you know why Rome allowed the Jews to have a pass as it related to Caesar and to the Roman gods? This is really important. Because Rome honored ancient things. And the Romans knew that the Jewish religion was older than the story of Romulus and Remus. That the Jewish religion was older than the pantheon of Greek gods. They recognized that the Jewish scripture and the Jewish religion was older than any of the other current religions. So even though they didn't honor Yahweh as God, they honored the fact that the Jewish religion was older than their religion. And so the Jews got a pass. So when these Gentile Christian scholars and bishops began to dive into the Jewish scriptures, and for the first time they were shocked to discover that the oldest religion anyone knew of at that time recognized that there was only one God from the very beginning. The implications of this for that culture was staggering. The implications were that since ancient times, every single other nation that worshipped multiple gods and every family that ever worshipped their ancestors, that every single culture since ancient times had it wrong. And the Jews had known this from the very beginning. They opened up or they, they unscrolled that first segment of the Jewish text that we call Genesis, and here's what they found. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God Now, we've heard this so many times. You've argued around this so many times. You've disputed whether or not this is even true and who wrote it, but don't miss the original context. And don't miss the implications of the original context. This was shocking to the ancient world because what they would expect to find is what they found all the other times in all of the other non-Jewish cults and creation stories. A line that would be like, in the beginning, the gods. But God? The word Genesis is a Greek word. It means origin. The first book of our English Bibles. And Moses wrote the first five books of our English Bible and of the Jewish text, the Pentateuch. But something very interesting happened that has affected every single one of you. In the 19th and the 20th centuries, archaeological finds made the claims of what we find in Genesis a little suspect. These archaeological finds created doubt regarding the origins of the Jewish or the Genesis creation account. And here's where there's doubt and what those doubts came from. Most of us were taught this in some sort of academic setting. They found Egyptian and Sumerian, Canaanite, and Babylonian creation texts. And they discovered that these texts, well, they were similar. Or so they first thought, they were similar to the Hebrew text. So similar, they thought, 
that the initial assumption was this, that the ancient Hebrew texts actually borrowed from other ancient creation stories. And when I took some of my ancient civilizations classes, we read portions of these ancient texts, like the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh. The assumption was, look, th this didn't come from God, all right? The ancient Hebrews, they just borrowed from all these other stories. So it's just one of many stories. So why take it seriously? The point being, it's not unique. And what you need to know because who keeps up with this stuff besides nerds like me? What you need to know is that that view has been pretty much abandoned in scholarship. Not only does Genesis not borrow from other creation myths, Genesis stands in startling contrast to other ancient creation stories. Genesis is a worldview unto itself, an extraordinary, ahead of its time, worldview. And the modern scientific community wouldn't even begin to catch up with the first statement in Genesis until 1927, when a Belgian priest first suggested the theory that we now call the Big Bang Theory, that the universe had a beginning. And maybe, maybe you know this, and if not, now you will. Uh, since the time of Aristotle in the 4th century BC, everyone pretty much assumed that the universe just existed, that it had always existed, that matter just was. Albert Einstein embraced this idea that the universe just has always been. But then, in 1964, with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation, some of you studied this in school, the view that the universe had always existed was abandoned. Scientists pretty much agree that in a trillion trillionth of a second, the universe expanded at mind-blowing speed from the size of something smaller than a pebble to its current astronomical scope. Or in the words of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Not everything has a beginning. And not everything has a cause. But everything that has a beginning has a cause. So the debate today in school, the things that you might be interested in or reading about, the, the debate today is not, did the universe have a beginning? The debate today is around, was that a personal, purposeful, intentional cause? But all of that, we're going to have to talk about another day. Back to Genesis. The significance, and this, this is what I want you to get, okay? This is such a big deal, especially if you struggle with Genesis. The significance of what comes next is lost on us, because the point that Moses is trying to make is actually assumed by us. Moses is building a case that's no longer needed because his argument ultimately succeeded. The point that Moses is trying to make is something that we just assume. But Moses is writing to an ancient, ancient, like triple ancient group of people, and all, they know, all they've known is slavery. And all they know is the power of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And Moses is trying to, trying to help them narrow their focus into 
re-believe and, and become atheist as it relates to the Egyptian gods and become believers in the one God, Yahweh. So in Genesis, he's not trying to explain how God created the heavens and the earth. And this is where we get mixed up, okay? Moses is making the point that God created the heavens and the earth. Not the gods, just Yahweh. And so he says, in the beginning, God created. Not Egypt's Amun-Ra or Babylon's Marduk. In Genesis, we find something extraordinarily different. Not even close, no similarity, no borrowing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is nothing like the Egyptian creation myths. It's nothing like the Canaanite creation myths, where the gods are at, at odds with themselves, where the gods are at war with each other, and where the, the gods actually create other gods out of body parts and out-of-body fluids. And this brings us up to the next epic ahead-of-its-time statement. Now, the Babylonian creation myth. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, maybe you're reading it right now. Maybe it's at home on your bedside table. Maybe you studied it in school. It's called the Enuma Elish. It means when on high. And in the Enuma Elish, humanity is eventually created. I think you're like five books into the Enuma Elish before you ever get to the creation of humanity. Humanity is created to serve the lazy gods. So after becoming the chief of the gods, the king of all gods, Marduk says the following. And this is actually a quote from the Enuma Elish, well, at least the English version of it. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they may be at ease. In all of the ancient creation myths, men and women are an afterthought. They exist to take the load off, to lighten the pressure on the gods. Genesis is completely different. Because of the way ancient people embraced these ancient mythologies about their gods, individuals had absolutely no rights. Women had absolutely no status, no hope. There was no intrinsic value in anyone that the violence and the injustice of the gods justify the violence and the injustices of their leaders on the men and women who worshiped them. They were acting, these foreign kings, these uh, leaders of the pagan cults, the, these kings were essentially acting like their fathers in the heavens. And then you come to Genesis. In stark contrast, with no parallel, nothing even close, a concept that the human race continues to struggle with even to this day. Genesis tells us that the, the religion that was older than any of the other current religions in the first century. Genesis says what no other pagan myth said. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In the Jewish text, the creation of mankind, of womankind, is the pinnacle, not the afterthought of creation, which means, and don't miss this, dignity. The dignity of every man, the dignity of every woman, the dignity of every child is established at the very beginning. This was unheard of. There was no parallel for this anywhere. And the pagan mythologies and the pantheon of gods that would develop 
after this, through the ages, none of them established this kind of thought, this kind of idea. But wait, there's still more. What comes next is even more unthinkable. And this is why the later archaeologists and later scholars decided, you know what? The Jews didn't borrow from any of these ancient myths. This myth, as they would consider it, is far and away different. It's a worldview unto itself. And it would have been unimaginable 500 years later, or 1,000 years later, 1,500 years later, almost 2,000 years later, this would still be unimaginable. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, not worship, not make idols out of, not deify, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. In the very beginning, God told the Jewish people, you will make no idols. You will make no, no idol of me, Yahweh. You'll make no idol or images of other animals, of other people, or anything that crawls on the ground or flies in the air. You will have no other gods before me because there aren't any other gods. In stark contrast to the, to the Egyptian uh, pantheon of gods that they had just escaped from, God says you will not worship nature. And think about this. You will not worship nature. You will rule over nature. The implication being you will be the stewards of this word. And that's an idea that we are still wrestling and struggling with to this very day. Every single pagan culture following the establishment of the Jewish people worshiped nature and the elements of nature and the animals of nature and all kinds of mixtures of animals. And from the very beginning, God established a unique worldview. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. Unimaginable. In the image of God, he created them. And ladies, male and female, he created them. This is way bigger than words. Jesus was the first to elevate the status of women. And this is why so many women followed Jesus. But ladies, in the very beginning, the God of the Jews who became the God of the Christians gave you dignity that the world is still trying to catch up with today. Only recently has civilization begun to wrestle with the dignity of men and women, and it was there in the very beginning. Now, our problem with this is that, well, we get distracted, right? Because when we think about Genesis, we think, oh, I see, Moses is trying to explain how God created the world. How in the world can anyone understand, and, and, it, and in ancient times especially, how God created the world? His point wasn't how God created the world. His point was that God created the world. And we, we get all confused, and we're focused on the timing of the thing and the sequencing of the creation account, and we miss, we miss the magnificence of these ancient statements. Moses dropped a bomb in the very beginning. Moses introduced a radically different, unparalleled, untested worldview that would be the foundation of what would later be called the golden rule. And the golden rule is not reflected in nature. Let's 
be honest. The golden rule isn't even reflected in human nature. But the idea was introduced at the very beginning when God said, you are not a means to an end. You are not to worship nature. I'm going to make you as close as possible to me. I'm going to make you in my image, which means every man, every woman, every child that you're ever face to face with bears the image of their creator. Be careful how you treat them. According to the Enuma Elish, you were born a slave to the gods. According to the Enuma Elish, you have no individual dignity, no individual rights. There is no redeemer. There is no afterlife. According to the new atheists, you were born a slave to your DNA. You have no free will. There is no redeemer. There is no afterlife. But in the very beginning, we are introduced to a God who saves, who redeems, who delivers, and who never, ever, ever gives up on you. All of this in the very beginning. A God who gives us freedom to choose and then honors our choices. And then Yahweh does the most ungodly thing imaginable. He goes to work to reverse the consequences of mankind's decision to choose against him. Genesis 1 creates and, and gives us and provides us with the, the, with the meta-narrative of our lives, the big picture, the ultimate context for human experience, a monotheistic worldview, a worldview that answers life's most important questions, the why questions. The why is there something rather than nothing question. More personal. Why are you here? Why do you matter? You are here on purpose, with a purpose. You are not the result of some cosmic conflict between the gods, and you were not created by the universe. God wanted image bearers who could know and relate to one another, and image bearers that could know and relate to Him. And this is my favorite part. When the time was right, when everything was just as it needed to be, Yahweh, the God of Genesis, He joined us. But that's later. Hold on. Back to the first century Gentiles. In the opening line of the Hebrew Bible, they realized something. That, and it's very difficult, very difficult for first century Gentiles to acknowledge. In the opening line of the scripture that they had begun to adopt as their own scripture, they realized that the Jews had it right all along, and nobody was listening. And that only fueled their interest in the law and in the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. And they moved very quickly to adopt the Hebrew scripture and the Hebrew Bible or the law and the prophets as their own Christian scripture. And thus, the stage was set for the inclusion of the Jewish scripture in the Christian Bible. But that inclusion would not be without its struggles. Our story is not done. Please, please, please don't miss episode four of text. Kind Father, thank you for this huge story that you've been a part of since the very beginning. Thank you for affirming today for us. We have value. We were, we, we were created on purpose. We were created with intention. 
individually. We have value, intrinsic value, not based on what we earn. It is not about whether or not we are good enough. You have granted us that value. So for those of us who struggled to think that, I don't know if I'm worth it. I mean, they're worth it, but I don't know if I am. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't, I don't know if I measure up. You have intrinsic value. You were created on purpose. You matter to God and you matter to this world. Thank you for the gift that each of these thoughts is. May this truth sink in. And for my friends who are listening today, God, I pray that this truth would sink in for them. You decided that they have value. You decided that they have incredible worth that they were made on purpose and not by accident. And they are objects of your love. May we just let that sink in today as we continue to understand this story of how the Bible came to be our Bible and all that went on behind the scenes to make this possible. As we go forward, may our focus be on you. Eyes up on Jesus. Jesus first, everything else afterwards. Thank you for your patience and your faithfulness with us. May it continue. And may we not hold selfishly these things that you have taught us, but we would share generously with those who are in need around us. May hope be what we are about. May kindness be something that we see as our, our right and our privilege to share with others. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.